are making our way through the book of James, and we are into chapter 4 this morning. James 4. Now, what if I told you this morning that I had a, a pill for you, or maybe if, if pills aren't your thing, maybe essential oils. I had some essential oils or a pill for you that could instantly grant you long life and a peaceful life. This pill would give you favor with everyone around you, and it would give you success in everything that you did in life. It would bring you physical refreshment. You may not be perfectly healthy, but you would generally feel good physically. And beyond that, you would not be lacking financially. Overall, your life wouldn't be perfect, I mean, you wouldn't have everything together. You wouldn't obviously be sinless, but overall, the direction of your life would be pretty straightforward and pretty successful. And every night, you would lie down and you would go to sleep and you would be satisfied with the way your day had gone. You knew that your day was productive and it was worthwhile and it was well spent. After taking this pill, you wouldn't live in fear and you would know how to approach difficulties and trials with discretion and with prudence. You'd know what to do. Now that sounds like a pretty decent life, right? I mean, who wouldn't want to have all of those things? Financial success, physical well-being for the most part generally your life goes straight forward and you know what to do when you hit bumps in the road you know how to approach those things I would say that if you if I were to ask you individually what does a good life look like to you what is a a flourishing life look like to you many of the things I just mentioned would be things that you would tell me back well I would think it would go like this and you would you would mention all of those things now I hope you do realize and know this morning I'm not some quack doctor who is going to prescribe you a pill or some oil that will will put all of these things instantly in action in your life but it is worth noting that if you were to open your bible to proverbs chapter 3 which you don't have to do that and i i'd encourage you to go back and read that this afternoon if you were to open your bible to proverbs chapter 3 and you were to read about solomon's description of wisdom Everything I just mentioned there is one of the promises that Solomon says will come with wisdom. He says a good life, a life as I have just described it, overall can be had through the acquisition of wisdom. And I think Solomon is describing the good life that way to motivate us to pursue wisdom. He wants us to have it. He wants us to go after it. And so he says, look, everything's not going to be perfect, but man, you're generally going to know how to approach life if you can acquire wisdom. Now, we've obviously not been in the book of Proverbs. We've been in the book of James. And James is very much in keeping with this wisdom tradition that is discussed in the book of Proverbs. James, in many ways, is like a New Testament version of the book of Proverbs. James wants us to gain wisdom. And he wants us to gain wisdom for the purpose of growing towards spiritual maturity and spiritual 
wholeness. That's the end goal. We acquire wisdom so that we can become complete and mature believers in Christ. And so James is often thought of as a very practical book, and I would say that's true. If you go back through chapters 1, 2, and 3, you'll see a variety of topics that James has hit on. A couple of weeks ago, when I was last with you, we got to what I think is the the theme of the book in chapter 3 and verses 13 through 18. This is really the center or the high point, the climax of the book. And in this section, James gives us the theme of the whole book, wisdom for wholeness, wisdom for spiritual maturity. In this section, he says your life will demonstrate what sort of wisdom you're living out of. You can be living based on earthly wisdom, or you can be living based on wisdom from above. And obviously, that's the type of wisdom he wants us to pursue. Wisdom from above brings peace and gentleness and wholeness, good fruits. And in James 3, verses 13 through 18, which leads up to our passage for today, James is trying to describe wisdom from above to us. He's trying to motivate us and help us to desire to pursue wisdom. But when you read this passage, verses 13 to 18 of chapter 3, you're probably left with the question, okay, that's great, but how exactly do I acquire wisdom? What do I have to do to begin putting on wisdom that leads to spiritual maturity and spiritual wholeness? What are the steps I have to take personally today, practically, to be able to do that? Now, if James 3, 13 to 18, gives us the theme of the book, the thematic peak of the book, then I think this next section, chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, is going to give us the teaching or instructional center of the book, right? So James is sort of saying, okay, this is the theme of the book. Now, I'm going to tell you very specifically how to work out that theme. I'm going to give you some steps and some instructions to begin to acquire wisdom in your daily life. And that's what I think he's doing in chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. How do you apply wisdom from above in your life today? And so that's what we're going to see this week and next week in James 4, 1 to 10. So we're going to be looking at three steps to acquire heavenly wisdom, all right? Three steps to acquire heavenly wisdom. And we'll look at one of these this morning and then hopefully the next two next week and not just one more next week. But three steps to acquire heavenly wisdom. And the first one of these steps is found in verses 1 to 3, and it's to diagnose your desires diagnose your desires. This is the first step that James lays out for us in chapter 4 to acquire wisdom. Diagnose your desires. And what I mean by that will become clearer as we go through this passage and as we read this passage. Now, you can see in chapter 4 that this section begins the same way that chapter 3 verse 13 began. Look back at chapter 3 verse 13. You have a question there. Who is wise and understanding among you? In chapter 4 verse 1, you have a question starting this out. And that's one of the reasons I think these two sections go together. They start the same way with a question. Chapter 4 and verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? So chapter 3 gives us the thematic center of the book. Chapter 4 gives us the instructional center 
of the book. Now, I want to show you how chapter 4 flows from what we saw of wisdom in chapter 3. Look at verse 17 of chapter 3. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So as you read that description of wisdom from above, the the defining quality, the defining characteristic of those who possess wisdom from above is peace. They make peace. They're all about pursuing peace in their relationships. I told you a couple weeks ago, a peacemaker is someone who takes broken relationships and tries to restore them and tries to put them back together. A peacemaker is like a guy who buys an old rundown car that's not working anymore and over the months he does everything he can to work and to put the pieces back together and to make that car run effectively again. He spends time every day working with that car and that's what a peacemaker does in every relationship that he or she has. A peacemaker is hungry for God's peace to invade the relationships that he or she is involved in. Now that's ideal. And we all, I think, in many ways want that and hunger for peace in relationships. But clearly, we live in a broken world, don't we? We live in a world that is filled with conflict and with brokenness and strife and disagreements. We live in a world that so many times exemplifies the very opposite of peace. And that's true, certainly at a national level, and it's also true at a personal level. We enter into conflict all the time in our lives. You don't have to answer this question out loud, and I prefer that you not raise your hand. But I mean, how many of us have been involved in some sort of interpersonal struggle this week? I mean, it may not have been a a physical fist fight, but there's been some emotional struggle or some disagreement or some strife or conflict that maybe you have had with someone this past week. Maybe you and your spouse had a disagreement. Maybe that led to some harsh words, or maybe that disagreement just led to the silent treatment. Maybe you got frustrated this week with your kids Maybe your kids, maybe you kids, got frustrated with your parents, annoyed with your parents this week. There's conflict. Maybe it's a coworker, a boss, a neighbor. Maybe it's extended family. The bottom line is that every single person here this morning, I would venture to guess, has had some form of conflict or strife this past week. Everyone has stories in their lives of conflict and difficulty with other people. In order to showcase the wisdom from above that James is talking about, in order to be a peacemaker, we have to know where conflict comes from. To know what to do with conflict, to know how to solve it, to know how to restore broken relationships, you have to know where conflict comes from. What is the source? Why do we fight? Why do we quarrel? 
Why is this such a common feature of our lives? I mean, that's exactly the question James asks in chapter 4 and verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? This has been true of our world since the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Conflict is as normal in our lives as the changing of the seasons. What happens after Adam and Eve eat the fruit? Instantly there's conflict. There's conflict between them and God. There's conflict between Adam and Eve, between the serpent. You turn one chapter over into into Genesis 4 and you've got brother in conflict against brother, husband against wife, neighbor against neighbor, nation against nation. The story of the Old Testament on almost every page of the Old Testament, there is conflict, there's strife, there's anger and disagreements. Why? Why did you have a brief argument with your kids while getting ready for church? Why did that happen? I mean, if we're, if we're going to be peacemakers, if we're going to pursue wisdom from above, then we have to be able to diagnose where this comes from. Why is there strife? We have to learn to get to the source of it. We can't just casually pass over it. And let me be clear this morning, as we're thinking about this and you're pondering this question, it is not peace. Peace is not achieved by ignoring conflict. Well, I just don't want to fight. And so we shut down and we don't say anything and we don't actually deal with the conflict. If you and your spouse are frustrated with one another, you're not a peacemaker by ignoring the conflict that is at hand. There's some couples who experience strife and then they're just sort of quiet about it for the next few days. And then there's something that happens that suddenly life returns back to normal. And we just sort of put it in the past and we never talk about it and we never actually deal with it. And we don't get to the root of what is going on. That is not the peace that James is talking about. And that same thing applies in relationships within the church body, with relationships at work, with extended family, with neighbors and coworkers. Sometimes people experience strife and they yell at each other, but other times they experience strife and they never deal with it. They don't diagnose the core problem that is going on. They may say, I'm sorry, and try to move past it, but they don't really know what's happening and why these conflicts keep coming up. Well, James is going to tell us, and this is so helpful, and he gets to the source of conflict every single time you have strife and you have conflict in your life go to James 4 because James is going to diagnose what the problem is and to be a peacemaker and to pursue true wisdom you have to know how to do what James is doing here look at chapter 4 verse 1 and into chapter 2 what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is it not this that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder, and we'll talk about that in a second. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, keep your eyes on these verses, verse 1 and then the first part of verse 2. 
I want you to think of this as a sandwich here, right? You can see what I read at the beginning of that, you have the word fight and quarrel. And then at the end of that, you have those same words, right? Fight and quarrel. And so you've got the problem on the outside. The problem is, is the outside and the cause of the problem is the meat in the middle of the sandwich. And look at the words that James uses to describe the source of the problem. The problem is fighting and quarreling, it's conflict. What's the source of it? And he uses three words to describe that. It's your passions, it's your desires, and it's covetousness, which is basically wanting something. So the bottom line, James says, in a very simple and straightforward passage of Scripture is that any time you or I experience conflict or strife, there is a desire or a want rising up in your heart. You are after something. You are drawn to something. And it's coming from inside of you. In some ways, this is very similar to James chapter 1 where he talks about temptation, right? The problem in temptation is not external to you. It's not the circumstances that lead you to sin. Look at James 1, you can flip a page back, verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You're not tempted by externals. It's not just because you're put in a tough situation that there's conflict. Temptation happens as our hearts respond and interpret circumstances. I have no doubt that if you've been around children for any length of time, particularly toddlers, that you've heard a toddler Two toddlers get into a fight, and when you try to figure out what's going on, one of them will say, she made me do it. <laughs> she made me do it, right? That's not true. And you can say this to the toddlers the next time they have a fight. You can say, no, your desires rose up within your heart. And you had a desire to dominate that other child and take the toy. And so you acted from those desires and conflict was the result of that. That's true. I wouldn't expect you to actually say that to a toddler because it probably wouldn't be all that helpful, but that's exactly what happens. Whether you are two or three and after a toy or whether you are 75 and having conflict with your spouse. James shows us here in verse 2 that conflict, that actions happen because of our desires. Look in verse 2 again. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so the result is that you fight and quarrel. Now, obviously, you and I don't often see something as extreme as murder. We have conflict and we may ignore it and sort of bypass it and go along, but we don't often see the end result of this being murder, especially within the Christian community. So this seems kind of crazy that James would say this, but the end result of anger and conflict will end up in physical violence and murder if you take the restraints off. 
I have no doubt that people don't go this far primarily because of social consequences and penalties that they will face. If you took all of that off in people's lives, this would be the end result. And Jesus actually teaches this in the Sermon on the Mount. James, or not James, Matthew chapter 5. Let me read it to you, what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And so the point is, is that anger and murder are tied together, and that's part of the reason that James says this here. But what's interesting in Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount is he doesn't just tell us, well, then don't be angry. That's not the end game when there's conflict and when there's anger. He actually paints a positive picture of what you and I are supposed to do when there's conflict. Listen to what he says. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The real instruction Jesus is giving there is to pursue reconciliation. Yeah, you're going to have conflict. You're going to have anger in your life. It's going to happen. And what you should do in response to that is be as aggressive and as intentional and as active as you can to pursue reconciliation. And Jesus's command to pursue reconciliation sounds very similar to what James says about wisdom from above in James 3 and verse 18. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. But here's the thing, if we're going to be the type of people who are able to pursue peace and reconciliation with one another when we have conflict, we have to be able to diagnose our desires. You have to know what's going on in your soul. Diagnostic work is necessary, but it is not easy, and it does not come naturally to us. One of the interesting side effects, I would say, of all of us having constant internet access today is that we can all pretend to be medical doctors at any given time. And I am as guilty of this as any of you are. I am confident of that. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands again, but how many of you have searched for a combination of symptoms to try to figure out what is wrong with you on the internet? I've done that so many times, it's unbelievable. And when I do that, I always think, I wonder what doctors and nurses think when someone comes into the hospital or into the office and says, well, I think I have this because I checked WebMD and I read online that I think I have this. Now, to truly diagnose, to accurately diagnose your sickness, it requires a base of knowledge to be able to do that. 
And when it comes to conflict here, James is giving us the starting point, right? He's teaching us how to begin to become people who can figure out why this conflict is happening. What's going on? We don't just type in symptoms and try to figure it out on our own. He's teaching us how to develop the skill of diagnosis when it comes to conflict. He wants us to be able to pinpoint our problem. And so we start with this broad category of passions, of desires, and of covetousness. The fact that we want something. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time this morning is I want to give you a little bit of a tool, some questions, some, a diagnostic tool to be able to walk through when you have conflict in your life with whoever that conflict may be with. This is a process for attempting to figure out where the conflict is coming from. Now, Bethany and I, when we have premarital counseling with with couples who are getting married, we love to do this and we love to meet with them. And one of the things we always make sure to do is to take them to James chapter four and to this passage. And if any of the couples that we've met with, they would affirm to you that we do this every time that we meet with a couple and we go here because it's so important because you're gonna have conflict in your life. You're going to have conflict in your marriage with your kids and you have to be able to figure out how to diagnose that so that you can grow to spiritual maturity and to spiritual wholeness. And we do this with premarital couples, but this goes far beyond just marriage counseling. If you're single this morning, if you've never been married, this is for you as well in your life this morning. So think of this process, these three questions I'm going to give you as walking back from conflict and not just saying, oh, that was a fight, that was strife, but saying, okay, now I'm going to try to figure out what's going on here in my own heart so that I can address this and deal with it in the future and root it out and walk in wisdom from above and be a peacemaker. So three diagnostic questions to help you with this this morning. The wind does not want me to give you these questions, apparently. Good grief. All right, first question. Is there conflict? I mean, is there frustration? Are you experiencing anxiety, worry, anger? Is there conflict? You are simply identifying the symptom here. Is something out of joint, painful in your relationships? And I know that sounds simple and obvious enough, but sometimes conflict runs under the radar and sometimes we don't think about it and we don't identify it sometimes we have pent-up frustration with a co-worker we don't recognize it for a while and so be attuned to this in your own life be on the lookout for strife and conflict and difficulty in relationships and I will say when you're actively pursuing wisdom from above and seeking to be a peacemaker Identifying conflict comes much easier, much more naturally. So the first question is, is there conflict? Identify that conflict. Frustration, is there anxiety, worry, anger, all of that? The second question is, and this is the heart of the diagnosis. What James says is true. Conflict comes from passions, from desires. So you ask this question, what is it that I am wanting? What is it that I am longing for? What is it that I am desiring? And here's the key that I'm not getting. And look what James says in verse 2 again. You desire and do not have. 
therefore, so you murder, right? You act on that. There's conflict. You fight and quarrel because you're not getting something that you want. You want something, you're not getting it, and so you fight for it. And there's conflict. Now, the possibilities here are almost endless. There are so many things that you and I can want and desire and not receive and then fight over. I'm going to list a few. You might want power. You might be after pleasure. You might want prestige or the approval of others. You might want respect. You might want your rights to be upheld. You might want comfort, ease of life security. You might want material possessions. And the list could go on and on and on, but the bottom line is there's something, when there's conflict, there's something that you want, that you're desiring, that you're not getting. And so you have to try to identify that. What is it at the root that I'm wanting that I'm not getting? So let me give you an example. Maybe this will resonate with some of you. Maybe it'll be helpful to you. You've had a hard day, a long day at work. And as you're driving home, you are looking forward to and anticipating walking in the door and plopping down on the couch for 10 minutes or more, turning on the TV and just letting your brain go into neutral mode for a little while. And so you're driving home and you're anticipating this and you get home and you open the front door and your spouse greets you and immediately asks you to vacuum up a mess that the kids have made. So you walk in the door and your spouse says, hey, can you vacuum this up? The kids have made a mess. Well, there's conflict in that moment. You may not lash out in anger. You may not even say anything. You may go ahead and vacuum it up, but then you're grumpy for the rest of the evening. You're annoyed that you had to do this. Why? Why are you bugged? Why are you annoyed? Why did the conflict happen? It happened because you spent your ride home from work, maybe not even wrongly, cultivating and anticipating and desiring something that was not met. You wanted this, and that want was not met, and so you fought out of frustration. May not have been physical fighting, may not have even been verbal, but you were annoyed and grumpy and bugged over that, and so you fought out of it. You fought out of frustration over your unmet desire. Now, not all desires are inherently wrong, right? I mean, you can want things that are not wrong to want. And so there has to be a third question here. So the first question, let me recap. Is there conflict? Identify the conflict. The second question is, what am I wanting? What am I longing for? What am I desiring that I'm not getting? And then the third question is, is this desire God-honoring or self-centered? What's the root of this desire? Is it about me primarily or is it about God and his glory? And that can be a tough question to ask and a tough question to answer. What if I don't know? <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, if that's the case, if you ask that question 
and you're not sure where your desire is coming from, then you bring your desire and your want to God in prayer. Look at verse 2. You desire, do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So there are two different issues that are described here. Often we want things, but we don't bring them to the Lord in prayer. And sometimes there are obvious reasons why, right? I mean, you kind of know that your desire for that 60-foot yacht is not going to be met with an affirmative and it's going to be delivered to your door when you pray to the Lord about wanting that 60-foot yacht, right? And so you tend not to pray about that and ask the Lord because that would reveal your selfish heart. That type of request is what James is talking about in verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That's driven by self-centeredness in a lot of ways. But let's go back to that example that I gave just a minute ago of you coming home from work, being tired and wanting to sit on the couch for a few minutes and relax and that desire not being met. What do you do with that desire? What if instead of thinking about that desire, longing for it, and then showing up at your house, what if you spent the time in the car acknowledging your desire and you, you, I want this, and then you took that to the Lord in prayer and you went to him and you asked him. That's exactly what James is saying to do at the end of verse two. You do not have because you do not ask. And so what if on the ride home, you realize that you're wanting this? It's not a bad want. It's not a sinful desire. And you took that desire to the Lord in prayer and you asked him for it. And you said, Lord, it's been a rough day at work. I'm acknowledging that. I am tired. I would love a few minutes on the couch to just sort of recoup and gather my thoughts when I get home. And you prayed to the Lord for that desire. Now, He may not grant that desire, but in the process of praying for that, you have conformed, God has conformed your will to his. What if you prayed the Lord's prayer over that desire? Listen to the Lord's prayer from Matthew chapter 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil one of the main purposes of prayer and we often forget this is not just to ask and get that's part of it there's no doubt about it god tells us to ask and ask boldly so that we will receive. But as we pray, one of the primary purposes, and you can see it in the Lord's Prayer, is to conform our desires to the Lord's desires. If the problem in verse 3 is that we ask wrongly, we ask to consume it on our pleasures, we ask out of self-centered desires, then pray to the Lord, ask that His will would be done, and your desires will begin to conform to His. Your will 
will begin to align with his. And as we take our desires to him, even in the midst of conflict, then he begins to conform us to his will and our passions become his passions. Now imagine what would happen if you're driving along and you asked God for that 10 minute break when you got home, but in the midst of that, you also prayed for his will to be done in your life, for you to want what he wants. And then you walk in the door, your spouse greets you, asks you to vacuum up the floor, and you've already given your desires to the Lord. And you recognize in that moment that what God wants right now is for me to serve my family and to not think about myself and for my desires to be conformed to him. And as you've been praying about that in the car, that process has already been taking place. And so hopefully at that point, the conflict is dealt with. One of my pastoral friends who I had lunch with this week told me, prayer is the battery that gives power to the principles that you are trying to implement in your life. So we read these principles in scripture and we see this in James and we see, okay, we have to diagnose our desires and we know that intellectually and we think about it, but then we don't even take that to the Lord and we don't pray about it. Prayer is the power behind applying those principles. Take it to the Lord in prayer and your desires and your motivations begin to change. So bring all of them to him in prayer. And so as you have conflict in your life, which you will no doubt have this week, use these diagnostic questions. Pursue peace and wisdom by thinking through these questions. Is there strife and desire? Okay, what is causing this? What desire am I having that's not met? And then is this desire God honoring or self-serving? And I'm going to pray through this desire and then go back to your spouse or your kids or your coworker, your fellow church member and talk all of that through and seek peace and reconciliation. So James would say the pathway, the steps to wisdom include being able to walk back from conflict and diagnose your desires and pray to God that his will would be done and not yours. This is the first step to acquire the wisdom from above that James is talking about. And we'll jump into the the next two in verses 4 through 10 next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we need your help with this. We need we need wisdom from above. We need to be able to diagnose our desires. We, we are driven by our passions and by our, our hunger and by our desires. And that's a wonderful gift, Lord. But because our desires are so often bent in on ourselves and self-centered, we, we live out of those and create conflict and chaos and strife in our relationships rather than peace. And to to truly be people of wisdom, Lord, we need to be able to diagnose what's going on and bring it to you in prayer. And so I ask that you would cultivate that ability and that skill in us this week. Help us to practice that even today as we enter into 
periods of conflict in our relationships. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for the grace that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.